Welcome to the Internist Guide 2, a limited series dedicated to high-yield guidelines in internal medicine. In this episode, we'll review Thrombosis Canada's 2021 clinical guides on deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism in the setting of pregnancy. For today's discussion, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Yai Huang, a general internist and obstetric internist at Mount Sinai Hospital, as well as an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Huang. Thanks for inviting me, Valerie. So before we delve into the actual clinical guidelines, I thought we could start by setting the stage. Could you remind us why we should care about venous thromboembolism or VTE specifically in the pregnant population? Right, that's a great place to start. So a VTE in pregnancy is important because it's one of the most common leading causes of death worldwide for mothers. Um, and as you know, VTE's risk is increased in pregnancy. So Generally, we quote a 10-time increase intrapartum and up to 35-time increase in risk within the six weeks postpartum. And generally, the incidence of VTE in pregnancy is fairly low at about 0.1%, with the rates of DVT being twice as much more common than that of PE. Okay. The other thing to note is that in terms of the presentation of DVT-PE, generally is very similar to outside of pregnancy. But for DVT, for instance, more commonly, DVTs occur up to 80% of the time in the left leg. And we think about it more commonly proximally in the iliac and the femoral veins rather than the popliteal vein. So patients can often present with buttock or thigh pain rather than calf pain, for instance, for DVT. And then PE-wise, um, we just have to be more mindful of thinking about PEs because some of the physiologic symptoms of pregnancy can often mimic symptoms of PE. For instance, physiologic dyspnea of pregnancy can make PEs harder to diagnose. I love that you mentioned that because I think for many of us who are intimidated about pregnancy presentations, we worry that some of the quote-unquote symptoms or findings in pregnancy are actually normal or expected as one progresses in their trimesters, and it's hard to, to tease that apart. Um, and so on that note, I was wondering if there are any prediction rules or tools that have been validated explicitly for this pregnant population setting. Okay, so very good question. So the tools that we know really well outside of pregnancy, such as the WELL score and the PERC score, they're not validated in pregnancy. So we tend not to use those. There is an older score called the LEFT rule. This was um, studied back in 2009, but this was do a cross-sectional study, so not a prospective validated score. This was a score looking at DVTs. So they used three different clinical criteria, uh, namely being the symptom being in the left leg, left leg edema, as well as it being the first trimester. And they saw that when you have absence of all three clinical criteria there was a 100% negative predictive value for ruling out DVT. So we tend not to use this score. One is it's an older score, and two is you'll see some of the criteria being first trimester. As I alluded to, re really the rates of VTE is highest postpartum, so it may not be as applicable uh, given our more recent data and what we know about the rates of VTE. 
But there is a much newer and one of the landmark trials has come out just in the last three years. So it's called the Artemis study. So this was published in the New England in 2019 to study the years criteria. So this is a criteria that you'll see is being uh, illustrated in the Thrombosis Canada, the 2021 guidelines in terms of how to diagnose BTE, specifically PE. So what this criteria was looking at was a combination of three clinical criteria as well as D-dimer in how to stratify patients who may or may not need imaging to diagnose VTE. And the three clinical criteria they used were clinical signs of DVT, hemoptysis, and PE being the most likely diagnosis as deemed by the physician. And combined with those three clinical criteria, they used a D-dimer, either a cutoff of 500, which is the criteria that we use outside of pregnancy, or 1,000. So for those patients who had three negative clinical criteria and a D-dimer of less than 1,000, or those with one or more clinical criteria with a D-dimer of less than 500, then those are patients who are screened negative, essentially based on the year's criteria. Therefore, we do not need to do any imaging. VTE is ruled out in those patients, and in the study, patients were just monitored clinically and asked to come back if they had uh, ongoing symptoms. If they screen positive with either of those two criteria, then patients with signs of DVT went on to have a leg Doppler, and those without signs of DVTs went on to have a CT pulmonary angiogram. So the primary outcome of this study was to look at the number of venous thromboembolism that occurred at three months' time, especially for those patients that did not undergo any imaging. And the secondary outcome was to look at how many of those patients who did not undergo imaging were spared of a CT essentially to reduce the rates of radiation in pregnancy. So overall, the study primary outcome found that only one patient was diagnosed with a DVT, actually on day 90 of 90-day follow-up, making essentially a false negative rate of only 0.21%. And in terms of the secondary outcome, 39% of patients were able to avoid a CT pulmonary angiogram, a majority of these patients, up to 65%, were in the first trimester. And then conversely, out of all of those patients that actually screened positive, ended up getting imaging tests, they also found that only 5% of patients were diagnosed with a PE out of everyone that was screened. So overall, this study found that essentially, we can probably use D-dimer combined with clinical criteria to rule out DVT and PE. It's probably not the best rule-in test because, again, the rates of VTE is still very low. Hence, this algorithm has made it into the Thrombosis Canada guidelines. And even since then, there have been meta-analyses that studied the Artemis trial as well as other randomized controlled trial, which has further validated and confirmed the negative predictive value of D-dimer and clinical criteria to rule out VTE. Great. I think this algorithm is one that many of our listeners might not be as familiar with. We often talk about the PERC and the WELL score, but as you pointed out, they weren't as inclusive of pregnant populations, so they may not be the most appropriate in this particular setting. Speaking of the algorithm and its incorporation of the D-dimer, 
I find that sometimes people either love ordering D-dimers or hate ordering D-dimers. Obviously, it can get challenging in a non-pregnant setting, but then also in the pregnant setting. What's something to keep in mind when you have a pregnant patient and an elevated D-dimer? So that's an excellent question. And this is the reason why some people have not taken up the Artemis studies years criteria uh, in the clinical setting. And I'll explain why. So we know previously that uh, D-dimer rises with trimester. So D-dimer generally is the highest in the third trimester. And even the year's criteria alluded to this, that the D-dimer's negative predictive value is probably the best in the first trimester when the D-dimer, probably the normal value, best reflects that outside of pregnancy. When you look at the Artemis trial a little bit closer, they actually quoted you the median D-dimer based on trimester. And just so that we're aware, currently we don't have different D-dimer criteria that's trimester-specific in pregnancy at all, okay? So if you were to use the cutoff of, say, 500 or 1,000 that they used in this trial, you'll see that generally in in the Artemis trial in the first trimester, the median D-dimer was already 505, okay? So if you were to screen someone positive clinically, and one of the criteria is if a physician thinks that PE is the most likely diagnosis, you're going to go on to image these patients because the median is already more than 500. Second trimester was even higher, 730 being the median, and the third trimester was over 1,000, okay? So it just goes to show that for some patients presenting with nonspecific symptoms such as chest pain and dyspnea, which are the patients that they study in, in the year's criteria, it is hard to plug it into a rigid algorithm such as the year's criteria without some clinical judgment right? Because D-dimer will essentially cause you to image these patients a lot more actually with CAT scans. And you'll see when you speak to obstetricians or obstetrics internists, we're very careful in terms of when we order D-dimers. So the way that I think about D-dimer is very similar to BNP for heart failure, okay? So I look at the precise probability of whether this patient will have a VTE. If my index of suspicion is very low, meaning I'm already fairly convinced that they have asthma or pneumonia or another condition causing their respiratory symptoms, I'm not going to order a D-dimer because I'm going to go with my clinical judgment and treat them and monitor them for that other condition. Conversely, if the pretest probability is already very high, meaning they came in with pleuritic chest pain and they have other VTE risk factors beyond that of pregnancy, then I'm also not going to order a D-dimer because a negative D-dimer is not going to help me, okay? I have this patient who's symptomatic. I'm going to go straight to imaging, probably going to treat them empirically while I'm waiting for imaging. The D-dimer is probably only helpful, similar to the BMP, when I have an intermediate risk. When I'm between two diagnoses, including VTE, especially if I'm seeing a patient in the first trimester or early second trimester where we know the D-dimer probably best reflects that of our cutoff outside of pregnancy, then D-dimer is another important marker to sway me one way or another, affecting kind of the pretest probability of VTE and other conditions. So that's really the only setting I tend to use D-dimer uh, in pregnancy, very carefully and very cautiously in very certain scenarios. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, very carefully and cautiously. And uh, I like that you you reiterated that it's really not supposed to be a rigid adherence to an algorithm or a level. It's meant to be incorporated into your holistic assessment and it's guided by your clinical judgment and pretest probability at the end of the day.
So now that we've talked about what tools could be helpful, uh, I thought we could spend a couple of minutes just going through a hypothetical case. Um, so let's say that we have a moderate suspicion of a pregnant patient coming in with a pulmonary embolism. Could you walk us through your thought process and then also subsequently the discussion that you would have with this patient regarding safe imaging to, to confirm your suspicion? Yeah, absolutely. So when I'm moderately suspicious of a PE, first things first, I will ask myself, do I need to empirically anticoagulate the patient? Because whether we're doing D-dimer or doing imaging, those are diagnostic tests. We need to treat them while we're uh, waiting for those tests. Secondly, I would think about whether or not they have symptoms of a DVT. Because if they do, then probably doing a leg Doppler is valid because one is there's no radiation and two is the treatment is the same. And again, based on the Artemis study, we knew that if patients did not have symptoms of a DVT at the time that they presented with symptoms of a PE, then the yield of a Doppler is very low. So the previous guidelines actually recommended doing ultrasounds of the leg routinely. But now we know that unless they have symptoms, it's really not worthwhile doing the Doppler because you're going to pick up DVT really 1% of the time or even less. And then when I'm going to go to sort of imaging, um, VQ scan traditionally is the first line type of imaging to use. And the reason for that is maternal breast during pregnancy is in the proliferative phase. So CT pulmonary angiogram can have a lot more radiation to the maternal breast than that of a VQ scan. Conversely, VQ scan has slightly more fetal radiation than the CTPA, but the maternal breast radiation offsets that. Uh, VQ scan, you may know, um, is a fairly kind of difficult to obtain test, especially after hours on weekends, and certain hospitals may not even have a VQ scan. The other thing is you need a normal chest x-ray before you can interpret the VQ scan because the VQ scan solely relies on ventilation and perfusion matching based on a perfusion defect. So if you have an abnormal chest x-ray, then you have to do a CT pulmonary angiogram. So VQ scan is still my first line, and it's still many of our first line imaging, just the way that we've been brought up and the different radiation considerations that I mentioned. But I would say that one thing that the Artemis studies have taught us, and same thing with the thrombosis Canada guidelines, if you cannot get a VQ scan readily, you do a CT pulmonary angiogram. Because again, delaying the diagnosis and potentially delaying the treatment is even more consequential to the mother and the baby than not doing the scan at all. In terms of counseling about imaging, a CT pulmonary angiogram, like I said, generally has slightly less radiation to the fetus. So what we generally say is a, the total amount of radiation allowed in pregnancy is 5 RAS. And for CAT scan, generally uh, of the chest, I quote less than 0.5 RAS, depending on the study that you're doing, and sometimes actually a lot less. So definitely a fraction of what's allowed in pregnancy. So if you need the imaging, you do the imaging. Now, moving along in our hypothetical scenario, if the imaging that you ordered does indeed confirm a DVT or a PE, could you remind us what are our options for anticoagulation in pregnancy? Yeah, absolutely. So low molecular weight heparin is our first line agent for anticoagulation in pregnancy. And the reason for that is it does not cross the placenta. Therefore, you don't have increased risk of fetal teratogenicity or fetal bleeding. Also, it's really easy to administer and dose as well. So we do the weight-based dosing identical to outside of pregnancy, and you do need to increase the dose as the pregnancy progresses along. 
you can either do once or twice a day uh, dosing. And generally, we don't measure anti-10A levels in pregnancy so long as we weight-based dose. Okay. If patients have renal failure because low molecular weight is really clear, then you use unfractionated heparin. Some of our other agents, specifically oral agents that we use outside of pregnancy, such as warfarin, we don't use in pregnancy because warfarin is teratogenic, especially in the first trimester and the third trimester. So we switch those patients to low molecular weight. Similarly, DOACs are not studied in pregnant patients. Therefore, we tend to avoid them in pregnancy just because we have safer alternatives in pregnancy. And then lastly, some of the other treatments for VTE, such as IVC filters or thrombolytics, we can absolutely use in pregnancy. And the indications are identical to outside of pregnancy. So for instance, IVC filters, if patients have concurrent bleeding and clot, and especially if they have a proximal DVT that you want to prevent from embolizing, then you can consider IVC filter. Similarly, indications for TPA would include uh, hemodynamically unstable PEs or life-threatening DVTs. Then uh, we can absolutely use either systemic TPA or catheter-directed TPA in pregnancy. And so let's say for our patient, we've started them on anticoagulation. Um, I find that this is the perennial question with anticoagulation, but for our patient, what would be the ideal duration of treatment? And how would we account for the escalating risk of VTE as pregnancy progresses? Right. So pregnancy-associated DVT or PE is considered a provoked event, and that's provoked by the estrogen of pregnancy. So generally, we treat for a minimum of three months, but including the highest-risk VTE period, which is the six weeks postpartum. So if you have a patient who is diagnosed with a PE in the first trimester, you would start therapeutic anticoagulation and continue them throughout pregnancy up until six weeks postpartum. So that would be way longer than three months, for instance. If a patient is diagnosed in the late third trimester with a PE, then you would treat them for a total of three months, which would include the first six weeks postpartum, the highest risk period. And then lastly, if you have a patient who's diagnosed, say, three weeks postpartum with a new PE, that's still a pregnancy-associated estrogen-associated BTE, you would treat them for a total of three months after the diagnosis. Jumping specifically into the perilabor period, if a patient has been started on anticoagulation because they developed a VTE earlier on in their pregnancy, as they approach labor, how should they be counseled regarding anticoagulation and timing? Right. So if a patient is on therapeutic anticoagulation, so they need a planned delivery. So what that means is if they're going to deliver vaginally, then they need an induction date. Or if they have an indication for C-section, then we have a date for C-section. And the reason for that is we need to hold therapeutic anticoagulation for at least 24 hours before their delivery. So if they want an epidural, the anesthesiologist will not do epidural if they got therapeutic anticoagulation within 24 hours of their induction, which is very similar to the periop management of anticoagulation. 
However, if they're only on prophylactic anticoagulation, then these patients can have a spontaneous labor. What we generally teach them is once they feel contractions coming on, they will not take any further prophylactic anticoagulation if they're due. And anesthesiologists generally want to wait at least 12 hours from the last dose of prophylactic anticoagulation to their neurox or anesthesia. And then postpartum-wise, provided hemostasis is achieved and there's no evidence of postpartum hemorrhage, generally we start uh, DVT prophylaxis four to six hours after vaginal delivery or six to eight hours after C-section. And if they're on full anticoagulation, then within the first 24 to 48 hours, again, provided hemostasis is achieved, then we resume full therapeutic anticoagulation. And stepping away from this scenario, I know we've been talking a lot about what happens and what do we do with a patient who has developed a VTE during pregnancy. If on the other end, they hadn't developed a VTE during pregnancy and and we approach delivery, uh, are there any indications for prophylaxis in the postpartum phase? Yes, absolutely. So again, the postpartum phase is the highest risk of VTE. So whenever patients need DVT prophylaxis during pregnancy, they will always uh, need it during the first six weeks postpartum. So common indications would include patients who's previously had a history of VTE, either related to estrogen, so such as history of pregnancy-related VTE, or unprovoked, and for whatever reason, they're not on lifelong anticoagulation. So these patients would need both antipartum thromboprophylaxis, so during pregnancy, and also the six weeks postpartum. If a patient has had a prior VTE that's related to a transient non-estrogen risk factor, such as a surgery, for instance, then they only need the thromboprophylaxis during the first six weeks postpartum, which is, again, the highest risk VTE period. Genetic thrombophilias are another category of diseases where patients need thromboprophylaxis, and it depends on the type of uh, genetic mutation. So for patients with homozygous factor V Leiden or antiphospholipid syndrome, those are the highest risk patients. So they would need DVT prophylaxis antipartum as well as six weeks postpartum. And for the other thrombophilias, it really depends on their first-degree family history, and this is nicely outlined in the recent SOGC guidelines, as well as the Thrombosis Canada guidelines in 2020. And then lastly, different pregnancy-associated diseases or states are associated with increased risk of clot. So for instance, C-section, specifically emergency C-section, is a major risk factor. The other one being immobility. So if patients have to be on bed rest due to, say, cervical incompetence, then those two alone, if they're combined with another minor risk factor, will require postpartum thromboprophylaxis. There's a lot of different small nuanced criteria, so always look it up in the guidelines. Like I mentioned, Thrombosis Canada 2020 is a good guideline, a recent one that we refer to a lot. Now that we've gone through the workup, prevention, and treatment of VTE in pregnancy, we're ready to wrap up our episode with the top five takeaways. Number one, VTE detection and treatment in pregnancy must balance risk of VTE versus risk of bleeding for the patient, as well as benefit versus harm to the fetus. Number two, there is no universally accepted algorithm for diagnosing PE in pregnant patients but recent efforts have identified potential rules and predictors that can help assess likelihood in the setting of pregnancy. Number three, D-dimer levels must be combined with pretest probabilities to guide workup. 
On their own, D-dimer levels are challenging to interpret given their physiologic increase throughout pregnancy. Number four, treatment of VTE in pregnancy usually involves low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin for at least three months, but anticoagulation is usually extended throughout pregnancy and up until six weeks postpartum. Number five, a patient's VTE risk factors, for instance, prior VTE, clotting disorders, and family history must be weighed to determine the role for antepartum and postpartum prophylaxis if indicated. And with that, I'll thank our audience and our guest, Dr. Huang, for joining us on the Internist's Guide to VTE in Pregnancy. This episode was recorded by Valerie Kim and produced by Allison Lai. Special thanks to this episode's guest, Dr. Yayi Huang, for joining us to review Thrombosis Canada's 2021 Clinical Guides on the Diagnosis and Treatment of DVT and PE in the Setting of Pregnancy. The Internist Guide 2 series was produced by Catherine Lurer and Shalisa Halani. The Internet Work Podcast is executively produced by Allison Lai, Zara Morali, and Leah Karanopoulos. The theme song was created by Lakshman Vasantham Molan. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon.